Yama, and welcome to Beyond the Gap podcast. I'm your host, Phil Usher, proud Wiradjuri man from central New South Wales. In this series, we talk with both Indigenous and non-Indigenous thought leaders on what it takes to truly close the gap. Conversations on Beyond the Gap aim to investigate Indigenous Australians' relationship with corporate Australia, the influences and constructs that should be considered for best practice reconciliation action plans, and what is the best path forward to engage and empower our country's First Nations people. In today's episode, I talk with Andrew Olson. Andrew is a proud Anawa and Dungadi man. He has a dynamic career across government, education, as well as a big four consulting and major banks. I found our conversation to be a real step-by-step guide on building out a reconciliation action plan. We talk how non-traditional Aboriginal sectors can still have a positive impact on the Indigenous community, what the thought leaders in this space do more effectively than others, and what the C-suite need to understand about cultural loading for their Aboriginal employees. I feel this episode will be an invaluable tool for anyone who wants to engage with the Aboriginal community. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for joining the show today. Yeah, thanks, Phil. It's really excited to be part of the podcast today and, and super excited to uh, be working with you. Now, the way we introduce uh, all our guests, we do the Blackfellow introduction. So tell us where you're from and, and who's your mob. So my name's Andrew Olson. I'm a Dungadi Nanawan man from the Northern Tablelands of New South Wales. Um, I'm a mob from a small country town called Walker. For those that may not be familiar with Australian geography, I guess if you find a map and you find Kempsey in Southwest Rocks and you you find a point in between the two of those places and draw a line directly inland, that's where Walker is. Still one of the coldest places I've ever been to in, in the extremity. Like it'll snow and it'll also get up above 40 degrees in summer. I think it's probably one of the only places I've been where it's probably colder than Canberra in winter, which is, you know, I think that's saying something about Australia if Walker is, is colder than Canberra. Yeah, she definitely is. Give us a bit of background on where you went from university, what roles you've done, what's that corporate career been like so far? Yeah, so I completed in, in 2010, I completed a Bachelor of Business with majors in Human Resources, Industrial Relations and Management uh, through the University of Newcastle. Um, and during that time, I worked in the public service as a cadet of the Australian Taxation Office. And that was really great in terms of building my core foundations as a, as a professional and getting my footing in the doorstep into full-time employment. After to graduation, I worked as an auditor for a small period of time before taking up a graduate role uh, in Canberra with the Department of Defence. And then after a short period of time, relocated to Sydney uh, to be closer to, to family and, and friends and was very fortunate to, to work in the tertiary space, but also have worked in the, in the private sector as well, you know, providing uh, support and guidance on Indigenous employment and, and RAP advisory for big four professional service firm and a, and a big four bank as well. Are those roles in the sort of Indigenous affairs space or are they sort of mixed between that mainstream and Aboriginal kind of roles? It's a good question, Phil. I think for a large majority of them, they've been more in that Indigenous space. I've been, you know, recruited or hired to as a subject matter expert around Indigenous issues, predominantly around employment, which is an area that I've chosen to specialise in. So it's been able to provide that expertise. But in other roles I've had, it, it's sort of looking at, you know, beyond that scope of that role and, and sort of future-proofing my skills. So, you know, where else can I apply the other skills and knowledge that I've obtained from my other positions um, and, and sort of being able to apply them 
to assist the organisation. As, as an interesting area, Indigenous employment has been you know, growing over the last 10 years or so. And I know you've worked in some of the private commercial companies where it's not really the first place uh, Aboriginal people think to get work. You know, it's not teaching, it's not medicine, it's not law. How do you go about building the Indigenous staff and recruitment for organisations that aren't traditionally front of mind for Aboriginal people to go into? Yeah, it can be a bit of a challenge, to, to be completely honest and open. I think the, the first point is always to do a bit of a, a glance at the brand and, and kind of, you know, understand going, you know, would Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people work here? Yes or no? And you then go and kind of cross-examine what infrastructure they do have. In the organisations that I've recruited for, there's been a traditional limited talent pool of professionals uh, or qualified professionals that they're looking to recruit. So when you add that level of complexity, it can often be a challenge. And then we're recruiting them against mainstream candidates as well. So that can often be a challenge when you've got one role and two or 3,000 people applying for. How do you then encourage Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to apply? You know, is there a talent pool? And I think that's been some of the work that I've had to do in organisations is, is you know, help build their, their strategies and identify which I guess pathway programs we should be working with, but also to looking at where exactly we should be resourcing because a lot of companies use the same you know, use the same sourcing strategy, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but when we're only, you know, there's a handful of candidates or, or talented professionals that can work in this space, you, you need to do something a little bit different. And that's where I think having those honest conversations with organisations going, hey, everyone's doing this what about we partner with this organisation or what about going to this university in order to create that pipeline of talent? You, you said at the top, that the first question you ask is, do Aboriginal people want to work here or not? What's an ideal workforce look like and what makes it attractive to Aboriginal people? You know, for the people listening to the podcast that might be in these organisations, what's some of the, the areas that Indigenous people look for to say, yes, I want to be committed to this or even weigh it up? Every candidate or particularly Indigenous candidates will have a different selection criteria that they will look at for a potential employer. You're looking at your strategies in place. Do I know someone that works there? What have I heard about it through my networks? Is it a culturally safe environment? And what I mean by that is that has there been any bad press about that organisation in recent times? I guess from a, a social corporate responsibility point of view, Many might ask themselves, is this the type of organisation that I might like to work with given, you know, recent negative media that those organisations have had? It's more than beyond just looking at the dollars and cents of, of what an organisation might offer. Yeah, that's interesting insight. It's not always just monetary, which uh, people tend to think of straight away for employment. It's, um, yeah, that safety aspect and just that comfort and I guess, feeling comfortable going to your manager and talking about some of the cultural stuff. Now, I believe you've uh, worked on a few raps, some to the elevated rap level. Just thinking in that space again where it's predominantly not a, a large focus or a history of focus on Indigenous servicing, where do you start when the organisation says, yeah, we, we want to commit to a rap, let's get it in place. They've got you in the role. What, what sort of your first steps after the executives want to kick it off? Yeah, I think the first thing is to have that honest conversation of why we're doing this. I mean, sometimes we need to really break down what the vision of it is. Are we doing this because we want to compete with our competitors? Are we doing this to make a difference? And I think it's having those honest conversations in which to ascertain and understand the reasons why. And I think 
part of that that narratives is getting to senior executives to understand the vision and the purpose and some of the challenges regarding that. So I guess you know you kind of start off from that point and then you build it out with some of the organisations I've been fortunate enough to work with. Some of, as you mentioned, have been at that highest tier of RAP, and there's a level of sophistication and understanding in executive you know, senior level executive buying. So you're not really building infrastructure to start with. It's kind of more you go, okay, we're doing the wrap. What are we looking at doing? All right, it's around procurement. Are we setting a target? Yep. If so, how much? How can we do that? Or, or it's around employment. Okay, we need to do this. How many people are we looking at recruiting? All right, are there particular skill sets? Can we use traditional supplying sources like agencies or do we need to partner with other organisations to help us obtain that commitment or that goal? And I guess that's opposed from other organisations where they might be quite new in this space and you're really having to build that, you know, you're having to build that infrastructure from ground up and really go, okay, well, we need to develop this policy. We, then we need to go have a conversation with this stakeholder and we need them to understand the reasons why we're doing this. Okay, we need to do a brief uh, for senior executive to determine this policy or, or we're building this or we're hiring this person. And it, that can be a bit of a, a more tedious and slower process to develop and, and go through and can be also really challenging because I think as an Indigenous professional working in this space, it's about that level of authenticity and ensuring that your organisations that you either you're providing support and guidance to but have that level of authenticity regarding that and, and a fair income about the commitment they're trying to achieve. Yeah, I think the authenticity, like you can feel it, even when you read the raps and, and see the behaviours of, of these organisations, you can, can really get a sense for it. One of the things that get brought up often with, with raps and putting them into place is just being cliche document that sits on the shelf. How can organisations prevent it from being that cliche document or, or get staff to buy in and, and feel it's, it's more than that document on the shelf? Yeah, I really think it comes from, from senior leadership. They really need to have to to buy in from the get-go and it's about taking them as on that journey. If they're involved in that design process, it makes it a lot easier because they can understand, you know, what, what's going into it. They understand some of the challenges. They can see that. They can see the vision and that's probably if you can engage them early on, that's probably half the challenge. And I guess, you know, you hope in some of these organisations that it cascades top down but in reality, you need to really penetrate it from all levels, you know, from top, middle and, and the bottom, but, you know, in order to, to really get that momentum. I think, you know, when I do speak to internal stakeholders around why they should buy and it, it's, I guess, really looking at why should they? You know, is it because we want to, you know, bridge the gap? Is it because it's good, you know, we want to be a good corporate citizen or is it the fact that it gives us a competitive edge to our clients or is it we really want to make a difference? And I really think if you can... I guess, take that approach and really sit in the seat of someone else and go, okay, I'm passionate about this area, but how can I get you to see this, how important this world is through my eyes, then I think you, you have to take them on that journey. And I think that's part of it. You know, in organisations where you've, you've had that challenge, being able to overcome that is probably one of the most rewarding aspects. But it also comes with an element of, of being challenging as well because if you try and go to someone and go, yep, you needed to see it from this perspective and they don't necessarily understand it, then, you know, you, you're having those conversations over and over, which can be a little bit frustrating and, and challenging, but sometimes you just need to look at a different tact and how you can get that buy-in from that particular stakeholder or individual. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. The uh, the executive team, the individuals may be motivated by different things. Some may be look at it as a competitive advantage and support it that way, whereas others look at it as the right thing to do. So uh, you, you're saying that you almost have to cater to the individual executive to, to get them on board at that level? Yeah. I think when it does come to Indigenous affairs, many senior executives and many non-Indigenous people that do work in this space, I think there's a level of discomfort and that's probably come from the fact that they don't want to get it wrong and they probably haven't had a level of engagement that they would like. So with that comes a bit of apprehension, but I think it's about sitting down, having a yarn and really just going, okay, it's a safe space. And let's have an open and honest discussion and, and really go, okay, well, what are some of the, the questions you want to know about this space? What are some of the stresses and how can I help remove some of those obstacles or those barriers? And I think that sitting down is a really important part of the process. I love that, creating the safe space because you get that feel for organisations like they're intense there, but they're just really nervous about saying the wrong thing or offending Aboriginal people. But in, in most cases, it's just... Just ask it, answer it uh, regardless. You know, <laughs> we've been called plenty of things before. I'm sure something in the corporate space uh, wouldn't hurt too much. In terms of the first process of the wraps, and you spoke about the tedious part, one thing I find organisations is they want to do a wrap, they want to close a gap, they want to get it done and get to that elevated status. But is that tedious part, is that non-negotiable? Do you have to go through and make sure everyone does the acknowledgement, have the smoking ceremony, have the cultural awareness training before you can start looking at increasing the procurement numbers and the more strategic impact? Yeah, I think it's about starting small. And as you know, the, the famous saying, from small things, big things grow. And I think with organisations, it's about starting off really small. You've really got to get the small things right and, and get them down pat before you can move on because it'd be nothing worse from an organisation that, you know, that kind of go, yep, we see this as a race and, and, you know, there's four tiers of wraps and you go, yep, I want to go from your reflect to your, your innovate to your stretch to your elevate really quickly because it can have a commercial detriment if you do get it wrong. And most importantly, I think the key group of people that we really want to ensure that are on board with this are our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff because, as you mentioned before, that, you know, a lot of organisations want to develop a wrap. You know, they want to do really great things and they – want to bridge this gap that are between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, but sometimes good intentions don't necessarily lead to great outcomes. And I think for organisations, just keep it really simple, start off small. If you don't have a high population of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff, that's okay. I mean, that's a building block. At least you know that it can only go upwards. I think the other thing is that you're looking at your governance structure as well, is ensuring that from the start around your reflect, that the governance structure is really important. So that's about setting up your advisory committee Surrounding yourself with really great people that will give you really honest advice and critique your organisation is really critical for any organisation that's looking at establishing themselves in this space because you know, there's a thousand plus wraps. Every organisation, as you mentioned before, kind of has the same sort of commitments, but I guess what's going to separate your value proposition or even your wrap from other wraps? And I think it's about you know, that governance and the genuine commitment and passion and authenticity that an organisation has to this space. Is that something organisations recruit for, an Indigenous advisory board? Is it, is it as simple as putting something out on seek or do you have to be a bit more tactful? It depends on the organisation. I guess your level of networks. I think, you know, there's a number of organisations that have existing partnerships with 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations. I think it's about, you know, having a chat and going, hey, we're looking at starting up a app. What are your thoughts? It's also engaging with your internal Indigenous staff to go, hey, we want to have a voice on that advisory committee. Would you like to be part of that? Or even do you know anyone? So I think it's starting with your Indigenous networks and, and asking the question and really going from there. And make sure you're, you're willing to pay them as well. The amount of oh. that I've seen uh, corporates expecting free advice from Indigenous elders and their knowledge is like you can't buy that anywhere. Uh, so I think, yeah, put, put a commercial rate on it if you're building an advisory board. In terms of the, the different stages of the wrap, is, is there any timeframes that, like, should you be in a, a reflect wrap for two years and then you really should be moving on to the next level or it's not that linear? Yeah, I guess every organisation is different in terms of, I guess, their progression through the wrap space. I mean, some move through them sequentially in terms of, yep, they start off at that, that reflect, they go to innovate, they go to stretch and, and then they go to, to eventually elevate. But I think roughly it's two to three years per each tier of wrap. But I would say, don't really fixate yourself on going, hey, you know, we, we sit in the innovate space, which is the second tier of wrap, and we have to do another innovate. I don't think that that's a bad thing. It's about let's get the systems down packed and embedded first before we move to the next level because there'll be, I guess, a level of expectation that you've already got those systems down packed. If you don't have that, then you're probably going to be chasing your tail um, in terms of going, okay, well, we've gone through the design phase now we need to go back and develop that. Well, we don't have this infrastructure, then we need to build this out or we need to do that or we need to engage with this specialist person for this advice. It can be very challenging and frustrating for some organisations that kind of just go, oh, we want to get to the top tier because, you know, this competitor next to us has it. So I would say that in terms of it, just take your time, go through your checks internally and, and feel comfortable, I think, as part of the advisory committee, having that honest conversation with senior leadership and your external advisors and going, okay, we're thinking about going to this tier. What are the pros and what are the cons? What are the pitfalls if we get it wrong? And what are some of the, the opportunities we see in terms of moving towards it? And I think from there, they'll be able to ascertain or you'll be able to ascertain the information that is required to make an informed decision on how you progress. Do you think every organisation can get to the elevate status or or some just due to the infrastructure or external controls they're just always going to sit at the the stretch area and, and that be comfortable it's a great ambitious goal to have that everyone moves through these tiers but i think it really comes down to an organization perspective is that many are very new to this space as we as we've mentioned before and i think it's about them feeling comfortable in terms of this space and getting it right rather than kind of jumping but the question is, once you get to Elevate, what's the next step above Elevate? And I think that it's about going, okay, well, if everyone's in this space, that's great. I'd probably do myself out of a job. But in reality, that you know, that's probably a question for, for Reconciliation Australia regarding if we have a 1,000 wraps that are at Elevate, where do we go from here? What's the next level? That's, yeah, that's interesting. We've got our Karen on here, so uh, be sure to hit her up with that question. Uh, so you've got obviously plenty of experience in wraps and, and indigenous affairs in, in organisations. What some of the things that the really good organisations are doing well? Like, what do they just get that others probably aren't sophisticated enough to understand? Yeah, I think it's probably around their systems. I think a really good organisation, particularly around procurement, will have your procurement strategy. They'll have a procurement team. They'll understand what the necessary partnerships are, whether it's with Supply Nation or it's with 
a number of Indigenous chambers of commerce or Indigenous business networks, they will already have those well established. And I guess from, you know, from those really great procurement teams to those that probably are on that start of that journey, you just go to them and go, hey, we want to spend X amount of money or think well, or we want to set this target. And they just go, okay, done. We'll come back to you and, and we'll, um, we'll come up with some options of how you can reach your such achieve this target i guess when you look at you know employment those that already have existing partnerships and pathways that are well established and have been there for a number of years i think is really important because they're the organizations that you're going to start to see that the investment that they've made in those organizations will start to pay off in you know five to six years it's not something that happens overnight because you need to build this infrastructure or you need to build this ecosystem should i say and from there, you can really start to, I guess, you know, develop and go from more of a transactional relationship feel where I think it's more about, all right, you have a service, we want this service from you. It's more goes, it's a two-way conversation of going, okay, well, we're corporate partners. What do you need and how can I better support you? Okay, well, you need my time. Okay, well, how can we help you build or develop your team's capability, your organisation's capability? How can we go beyond just giving you money. What is it that you actually need? Is it mentoring of your staff? Is it professional development? Is it just a space to work in? And I think from that, that's developing that relationship. It, it doesn't seem as transactional as, as other organisations. Love that advice around the time frame and that return on investment of five to six years because, you know, in our space, particularly with the charity stuff, you get money, you expect to turn around in 12 months, but... Indigenous affairs just isn't that quick, so so taking that longer term mindset. But you mentioned about procurement targets. What what are some of those targets? Is it percentage spend of procurement goes to Indigenous? Is it number of businesses? What what's that look like? Yeah, I think it's it's different for each organisation. Some will set a you know a percentage rate in terms of you know our procurement is is X and the percentage target will be Y. You know it might be one, it might be three percent of our, our total procurement spend. Others will set targets of we want to increase our, you know, we achieved $3 million in the procurement space. We want to have a, you know, a 25% year on year of that particular amount um, and grow that gradually. Others might just be, hey, we just want to get to 100000 It's really different in terms of that procurement and, and the level of sophistication an organisation might have. Others might even turn around and go, well, we want to have a supplier in each region that we operate in, in Australia. Um, so it's really, I think, different for each organisation and I guess whether they're big or small, whether they're national, whether they're regional and the type of industry they work in as well. It could be really, really different. Just to get some appreciation of the, the nuances, whose responsibility is that? They say, right, we're going to hit a procurement target. You've got the Indigenous Affairs team and you're talking to the procurement team saying we want X policy and, and say you don't hit that. What, what sort of happens in that, that organisation? Is that the Indigenous Affairs team needs to consult more or provide more options or it's on the procurement team? Like where's this responsibility sit for RAP's success and probably missing the mark? Yeah, I really think that around that governance piece and every organisation is different in terms of its hierarchy and how that commitment's structured. I think for some it's, you know, I've been really fortunate to work for organisations that where we've set procurement targets, we've pretty much achieved them a majority of time. So I haven't really had to have too many conversations of the negative variety of saying, hey, why didn't we hit this? But I think it, it, it's a largely within an organisation. If you have a decentralised procurement chain, it can be very challenging to kind of go, hold on, who does it sit with? Oh, it sits with project managers. 
Okay, well, do they, are they actually aware that we have a target, yes or no? Okay, well, then who's the next person in the, the hierarchy that we need to speak to to ensure that they're aware of this target? But eventually, you know, all dotted lines lead to the top. So I think it's, you know, having a chat with, you know, your senior executives to ensure that, yep, we are setting this target, please make your staff aware of this um, and they can cascade that information down. Let's say there's people listening to the podcast, they're, they're in one of those organisations that haven't had a wrap that they've thought about it before. What do you recommend their first step be to kind of getting their head around it, right? Because Indigenous population is a small part of Australia. Like They've got a lot of stuff going on in these organisations. How do they get their head around and how do they start to appreciate something that is really a minute sort of part of their day-to-day life? Yeah, I think for an organisation, it can be really challenging. I think when we talk about that diversity agenda, I think that you know, every organisation can't operate in the same space. But if you do want to come in and work in this Indigenous space, I think it's about, you know, having honest conversations. You know, if you want to develop a wrap, have a chat with Reconciliation Australia. If you want to increase your procurement numbers, then meeting with organisations like Supply, Supply Nation or your other chambers of commerce or your, your Indigenous business networks. Even sitting down, having a yarn with your internal Indigenous staff, I think for most the common question, well, we want to operate in this space. However, we actually don't know internally who our Indigenous staff is. Well, there's probably your first cue to develop a system and metrics to track and record Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff. Then from there, I think from that question, you can ascertain whether or not you're a culturally safe environment because if Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff don't choose to identify, well, what are some of the reasons? We've been excluded from past government policies or it's a not culturally safe environment. And I think that's where you can start to to really dissect and start to build that infrastructure. But I think it's, it's first and foremost having that yarn. I think you know, the other thing is that being mindful of the cultural loading of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff is that often when we see the RAPs or, or Reconciliation Action Plans develop that but sometimes organisations will put them on Indigenous staff and it's not our job to implement this, you know, these types of commitments. It's, it's a whole of organisation. So it has to come from top down and, you know, the middle as well in, in terms of everybody having that mutual buy-in because in this space the cultural loading can be excessive for many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander to staff and you can burn out, you can have fatigue. And I think that's something that within this space is that, you know, you can build a career in it, but you can also burn out in this space because the immense pressure that you do face on yourself is from not only wanting to do more for the mob, but also to that reciprocity for mob is that kind of, if I can, if I can move forward, then I can help uplift someone else. And I think that for many organisations, it's about understanding that that can be a challenge is that that burnout of Indigenous staff because this space can be really challenging. I think if people are taking anything away from the podcast, just one thing, it's that last bit, because that is really, really exhausting. Like I've been in roles before, and I'm sure you have, where you're responsible for Indigenous affairs or servicing, and then something goes wrong that's not even really across your product line, but because it's got Aboriginal in it, it comes back to you. You have to deal with it. It takes on a bit of that vicarious trauma where you're loading because it's essentially mob and family and that. That takes time to heal from, and I don't think corporates understand that level of it. Yeah, and I think sometimes corporates have that 
they fail to understand that as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, we're not one homogeneous group. Although that we might have, you know, a, a similar shared experience, it's a very different experience or lived experience, should I say. And I think that when you look at applying strategies that are one size fits all, it doesn't necessarily work in this space. And I think particularly in that cultural loading, it's about sitting down and having regular check-ins with your your staff that do work in this space, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, and, and kind of going, hey, how are you going? What's challenging about this? Or what can I do to help open and unlock doors so we can move forward in this space? I think sometimes we underestimate the value of a simple conversation and, um, and what that can do for, for individuals and morale in general. I think that's a great note to finish on. Always kind of put your staff first and just appreciate, like you said, across across the board, Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal, have that conversation around some of the challenge that staff are going on. Now, if there's anyone listening to the podcast and they're looking at building a wrap or they want to get some more insights and want to contact you, where's the best place from that? Is it jumping on and connecting on LinkedIn? Yeah, I think that's probably the, the best bet is, is jump on and, um, you know, connect via LinkedIn and, you know, really happy to provide support and guidance and, for this space, it's about getting it right. You know, it's not about monetary value. Um, it's about getting it right for other mob because if we are to move forward as a nation, um, it's about helping uplift and, and sharing the knowledge and the lessons I've learned working in this space. Beautiful. Thanks for the chat and your expertise. Really appreciate it. So easy. Thanks, brother, and take care.